managers. But there was one season, a, a month or two, where all those managers were out due to vacation or some kind of sickness or something. And so we ended up getting the night shift manager named Jeff who came and took over the evening shift. Now, everybody was afraid of Jeff. He was a very terrifying person. He's a Patriots fan, for one thing, which, again, is very scary and intimidating. He was an older guy. He worked the night shift. He used to work at the town center county market, which was in the rough neighborhood of Danville, and he'd stop people from shoplifting, and he just had a very gruff attitude about him. And so all the workers were afraid of him. I was afraid of him as a 17-year-old kid. And I remember he came to me one night and he said, Lance, I want you to be the go-between between me and the other guys who are working on the truck. And I kind of got sheet white and I was wondering, you know, why is he having me doing this? And he says, I'm going to tell you what to do. You're going to tell them what to do. And then you're going to report back to me. And if it doesn't get done, it's on you. And so this is like a nightmare for a 17-year-old kid having the night shift manager who, again, you know, very intimidating tell you that you're going to be the go-between. And here was the problem. I understood where the other workers were coming from. They were all afraid of Jeff. I was afraid of Jeff. We knew what it was like to work on the trucks and unload everything and stock the shelves and things like that. But I had no relationship with him. I was still afraid of him. I didn't know how to go to him and ask for things. And so it wasn't a great working relationship. And in that illustration, we get a little bit of the picture of what it means to be a mediator between someone. A mediator understands both sides and can come to some kind of an agreement. In the Old Testament Jewish system, they had something called a priest or even a high priest. And what a priest did, some people think they just made sacrifices. Their main responsibility was to make sacrifices, but to also teach the law of God. In teaching the law of God, they would act as God's representative to the Jewish people, saying this is what God has said. But on the other hand, in making sacrifices, they would represent the Jewish people to God, confessing sin, having a relationship with him. So we see the dual aspect of the priest. They would represent God to the people, and they would represent the people to God. They would have a high priest who was mainly involved in the administration of the temple and all the affairs of the Jewish system. We've run into the high priest a couple different times in our study of the book of Acts. We know that they were the ones who put Christ to death. They persecuted the church. But it just in general, the high priest was involved in making atonement for the people. That was one of his main roles on the Day of Atonement. We will get into that more later. This was the problem with the Jewish system, though. For hundreds of years, they had a human high priest who knew what it was like to sin, who knew what it was like to be human, who knew what it was like to fall short of God's glory. But they did not have a high priest who could understand God. They did not have a high priest who had a relationship with God like they should because we've all sinned and fallen short the glory of God. And so for hundreds of years, Israel had imperfect high priests, imperfect mediators. There were thousands of sacrifices made, but they were all looking forward to the promise of the ultimate sacrifice in Christ who would save the people from their sins. So then as we know, as we celebrate, Christ comes, 
He's born as a baby. He dies on the cross for our sin 33 years later. And how has this changed? Has God changed at all? The answer is no. But how has our relationship with him changed? Well, we still sin, right? That didn't stop us from sinning. We still fall short of God's glory. We still aren't like God. We still need a mediator, a go-between, someone to go to God on our behalf. And we find that person in Jesus Christ. And the author of Hebrews explains it well here. Jesus is our great high priest. He goes to God on our behalf. We've been talking about who Jesus is this Christmas season. And last week we saw that Jesus was a prophet. He wasn't just a prophet, but he was a prophet. He had a message from God to the people. And it's life if you accept it, and it's death if you don't. Jesus is the prophet, and he calls you to believe in him. And this morning we want to see that Jesus is our great high priest. In a way that all the other high priests and priests could not do, Jesus represents God to us, and he represents us to God. What does it mean that Jesus is our high priest? How does this affect us as Christians? Well, what I want us to see today as we go through this sermon is three different ways that it affects us as believers. First of all, it affects our sin. It affects our sin. What does this mean? The high priest would offer sacrifices for sin. Jesus Christ goes to the Father and he is the sacrifice. He sacrificed himself for our sin, and he's the only sacrifice that God looked at, accepted, and it washed away the sins of those who believe in Christ. We enjoy hiding our sins, don't we? Think about Adam and Eve. What did they do when they were caught sinning? They went and hid because they knew they were naked. We enjoy hiding sin, but just like Adam and Eve, we cannot hide our sins from God. And so Jesus, our great high priest, affects our sins. We can take our sins to him, confess, and find mercy and grace. Secondly, Jesus, our great high priest, helps us with suffering. He suffered in this life. Did he experience loss? Yes, Jesus wept, mourned for his friend who died. He experienced pain, disappointment, discouragement, loneliness. Jesus identifies with the sufferings that we face in life and then lastly our service there's times in the christian life where we can serve god we can be faithful towards him but just like isaiah when he sees the holiness of god and he says woe is me i'm undone in our service we can feel inadequate we can feel like we're not worthy and yet we'll see that jesus our great high priest motivates us to serve god So keep these areas in mind as we consider Jesus, our great high priest, in these five verses that we're going to look at. And what I want us to ultimately see is that we should draw near to Jesus, our great high priest. We should draw near to him. Now you might say, what does that mean? We're going to see what that means throughout this passage. But it ultimately means you can go to Christ in prayer. You can pray to Jesus Christ, your high priest. You don't have to pray to Mary, a statue, Some other God who you don't think hears you, you can pray to Jesus Christ 
and he goes to the Father for us. So why should we draw near to Jesus? Well, I want us to see four different reasons this morning. First of all, we can draw near to Jesus because he gives us rest. He gives us rest. Look with me at verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Hebrews is a complicated book. To understand what he's saying here, you need to understand what the author of Hebrews is talking about. So for that, go back to chapter 1 of Hebrews. One of my favorite verses, if you hear me talk about Christ and even the Word of God, you'll probably at some point hear me mention this verse. And it says in verse 1, Long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things. The author of Hebrews, from verse 1, he doesn't say, hey, this is, you know, he doesn't tell us who he is. He starts out by saying that Jesus is better. Jesus is superior. He's better than the prophets, as we're going to see. We're going to see how he's better than Moses in Hebrews later. He's better than the high priests. All these other earthly things in the Old Testament, Christ is better. And so throughout, especially these early chapters of Hebrews, we see this message about how Christ is better. The superiority of Christ. And then in chapter 3, in verse 7, he starts focusing on this issue of rest. It says in verse 7, Therefore the Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And so our Christian experience is compared to the Old Testament children of Israel in the wilderness. We know that they wandered around for 40 years. Why? Because they put God to the test. They said, hey, we're not going to go enter this land. These people are scary. We, do, we can't defeat them. And so they wander around and they don't enter the promised land which is rest. And this theme of rest is talked about throughout the rest of chapter 3 into chapter 4, and where we as Christians are encouraged in verse 1, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So now he's saying, hey, Christians, you should focus on entering the rest. But here's the problem. What is the rest. It's not the promised land of Israel. We're not Jews, right? So what is this rest? Well, some people think it's just the rest that we have in Christ. He says, come you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And I think in part that is true. But I also think that what the author of Hebrews is getting at is a future rest that we all will have in Christ. If you are a Christian today, this world is not your home. And in fact, the longer you're a Christian, the more you should feel like this world is not your home and you're not happy here and you just can't find rest. You're suffering in life. You have all these trials and you just want to calm down and rest. You face persecution in your workplace or from other people who aren't Christians and you just want rest. 
And what the author of Hebrews is telling us is that true rest is going to come when you stand before Christ one day and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. That is when you enter rest. And so in verse 11, he says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. It's almost an oxymoron. He's like, hey, you need to work at resting. Some of you are like, hey, I can do that really, really well. I can work at resting. But he says, strive to make sure that you are entering that rest. Now, does this mean you can lose your salvation? No, but he's saying you'd better be careful. You'd better hold fast to the faith. Why is that? Well, look at that next phrase. So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Whose disobedience is this? What's the children of Israel? Again, they did not believe God. They did not trust his promises. They did not believe that this is what God has said was true. God said, I'm going to bring you into the promised land no matter who is on the other side of it. And Israel was afraid and they doubted God. And so they were in the wilderness and they all died out. Not one of them saw the promised land except for Joshua and Caleb. And so in the same way, he's saying you as a Christian should strive to enter the rest and don't fall into the same sort of disobedience. Don't allow sin into your life. Don't disbelieve God. But how do we do this? How do we enter his rest? Well, we get to a pretty famous verse of scripture. In fact, I told Tim in Sunday school, I said, hey, please don't steal my thunder on this verse. And in fact, I kind of walked out just to make sure, you know, I'm not hearing what he says about it. Verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing into the division of the soul and spirit and joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, most people take this verse and they say a lot about the word of God, which is true. What Tim said about this verse today is true. It is powerful. It is living. It is active. God's word is effective. But what the author of Hebrews is showing us is that God's word sees you. God's word understands you. It looks into your heart. God's word is, first of all, living and active. It affects what it means to. If God's word says something, you can bet it is going to happen. There's been so many prophecies fulfilled in scripture that we've seen. And guess what? There are a lot more about what is coming one day. And you'd better believe that if God has written it down in his word, that it is going to happen. God's word is living and active. It works in human lives. It brings transformation. But notice, it's also sharp. Now, why does he compare it to a sword? Well, it's Probably a better translation is not a sword, but a surgeon's knife, or maybe even a butcher's knife. It is sharp. It pierces exactly what it means to perform spiritual surgery. It opens you up. God's word sees you for who you truly are. And guess what? There's nothing hidden from its sight. Look at what he says. Sharper than any two-edged sword, it pierces into the division of the soul and spirit. Now, some people would say this shows that you have a soul and a spirit and a body. What I think it's really saying is that God's word sees into your soul. It shows you what sin is there. 
So as the author of Hebrews is saying, hey, make sure you're not living in disobedience. By the way, God's word sees your disobedience. Just like Adam and Eve thought, I can hide my sin from God. You can hide your sin from others. You can hide your sin from everyone else in the world. You cannot hide your sin from God. God's word sees you. It sees what you're hiding and it exposes you. That's what he's trying to say here. Piercing the division of the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. I think that is just saying that it again pierces into you. There's nothing that can hide it. Your personality, your flesh cannot hide your sin, cannot hide who you truly are. God sees you. And it's a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You can see when someone sins in their actions. You can see when someone sins in their words. But you cannot know someone else's thoughts. You cannot know someone else's desires. But guess what? God can through his word. James says that God's word is a mirror. You look in it and it shows you who you truly are. About, a, two, about two years ago, my brother Trent, he was actually playing piano here for us at church. He was staying with me one winter break for about a week, and we got into this show called Forged with Fire. How many of you have ever watched that show? They like make all these cool swords and stuff, and it's like a race to see who can make their swords, but it's not super dangerous. Um, and then they test out these swords, so they say, this is what you're going to make. And then they have all these tests to see how strong they are, how sharp they are, how effective they are, and they test them out by cutting into different things like bags of grain or into wood and things like that. They're trying to show, hey, this sword is sharp. And there's one guy on there that always says, you know, your sword will cut. Your sword is sharp. And what God's word is telling us in Hebrews is that his word is sharper than any other sword. It cuts into you and it shows you what is truly there. We'll get that next verse. It says, And no creature is hidden from his sight. I actually think this is just talking about God. God has his word, which shows us our hearts, but he also sees us. No creature is hidden from his sight. Adam and Eve weren't hidden from God. Anyone else in scripture who's tried to hide cannot hide. In fact, think about Jesus talking to the woman at the well. And she talks about how, you know, she's had another husband. And he's like, actually, you've had five husbands. Jesus knows your past. He knows your sin. He knows who you've been. Peter, as he says, hey, I'm never going to forsake you. I'm never going to desert you. And Jesus says, before the clock strikes 12, or before the rooster crows, you all have denied me three times. God sees us for who we truly are. It says, but we're all naked and exposed to the eyes of him. I think he's calling back to Adam and Eve. They sinned. They realized they were naked. They tried to close them, themselves. But guess what? God really saw them. Could not hide from God. And this is what the scary part is. Why does it matter that God can see us? Look at that last phrase. Of him to whom we give an account. Every person, whether they care about their sin, whether they don't, whether they hide it, whether they just sin willy-nilly without any giving any care at all, everyone will give an account to God. And so how do we enter the rest? 
How do we enter the rest if God sees all of us? How do we enter that rest? Have you ever been desperate for rest? I was in charge of a bachelor party for one of my friends a couple years ago. Now, you know, the, us Bible college students, we have some pretty rowdy bachelor parties. You know, I think we went bowling, and then after that we played video games, and after that we went to bed. But it was like 2 in the morning, and we're driving back from his brother's house. I remembered asking Evan, I said, hey, what time do we have to be up the next day? Because we had to set up for the wedding that was coming up. And he's like, well, we're going to leave the house at 6 a.m. And we're driving back at two in the morning. And I said, 6 a.m.? Like, you could have told me that before, you know. And he's like, well, I didn't know what you had planned. And so I just figured we could all be tired. So I think I slept for like less than an hour that night. We were all sleeping on the floor of his parents' house. And I can just remember like being so anxious to sleep. We were moving things and getting stuff ready. And, there, you know, during the wedding rehearsal, I'm standing up there, you know, and just kind of trying not to fall back asleep. And just like when we got home that night, I mean, I fell asleep like on another person when we were playing video games. I was just so ready to sleep. So how do we enter his rest? We're not desperate for physical sleep, but as you go through the sin-cursed world, you want rest that comes from Jesus. So how do we enter his rest? Well, I think we see that in the next couple verses. God's word exposes your heart, and you think there's no way I could ever enter his rest. So you need a great high priest. You need Jesus who says, come, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We'll talk more about how this applies in a second, but let's look at the second point now. Why should we draw near to Jesus? Well, he gives us rest, yes, but that's because he's seated by the Father. Verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. The author of Hebrews introduces now Jesus, the great high priest, and this is going to be discussed over the next several sections of Hebrews. But he mentions it here, I think, to show us that God sees our sin, so we need a high priest who can mediate our sin to God, who was the sacrifice for our sin. What did the high priest do? His most important duty was on the Day of Atonement. He would go behind the veil, and he would make a sacrifice for himself and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. So how is Jesus a better high priest? He is a great high priest. And he hasn't just gone behind the veil. It says he's passed through the heavens, a place where no one else could possibly go. He's passed through the heavens to God's throne room. And he didn't offer an animal sacrifice, but he was the sacrifice. And he brings himself to the throne of God. And he's seated by the Father. Jesus is our great high priest. He's the Son of God. And he says, let us hold fast to our confession. What's a confession? Well, it's not just saying you've done something wrong, but it's saying the same thing about something. You're saying, this is what happened. We in a church confess our doctrinal statement. Hey, this is what we believe about God and his word. 
So he says, hold fast to your confession. How do you enter the rest? Hold on to what you believe because Jesus is your great high priest. He's gone to the throne of God for you. We can draw near to him. Jesus is a better high priest because he can relate to God. Could any of us go to heaven? No. In fact, Isaiah, when he sees God on his throne, he says, Woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. But Christ stands there, the perfect sacrifice, the Son of God. And God says, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. God accepts the sacrifice of the Son. Jesus is the perfect mediator. He represents God to us, yes, and we saw that with Jesus the prophet, but he also represents us to God. And he takes on our sin. As the word of God exposes sin in our lives and we confess it, we repent of our sin. Jesus Christ then goes to the Father and our sin is forgiven. It's washed out, it's blotted out, we're made white as snow. Why can we draw near to Jesus? All the other priests were men who had to make sacrifices, not only for everyone else's sin, but for their own sin. When sin leaves you feeling guilty, when it leaves you feeling ashamed for what you've done, you can draw near to Jesus. He's your great high priest. He can relate to the Father. When you're suffering and it feels like no one sees you, Jesus Christ has passed through the heavens he sees everything he knows everything about you and he helps you in your suffering when you grow weary in serving him you wonder how long do i have to keep doing this christ is with the father he's seated at his right hand and one day he wants to tell you well done good and faithful servant he's our great high priest But the issue is that Jesus is God. He can relate to God, but how can he relate to us? How does Jesus, the great high priest, relate to people? We'll look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Why can we draw near to Jesus? He gives us rest. He's seated by the Father. Number three, he understands our weaknesses. Jesus Christ took on our human flesh. He lived a human life. He can relate to us. He can relate to us like no other. That word sympathized means to show compassion, to relate He knows where we're coming from. He embraced our weakness. He took on our flesh. Now the big question here is, how did Christ understand our temptation if he's God? Well, it says that Jesus was tempted in every way like we are. Now he didn't sin. Yes. But in becoming human, he understood what temptation is like. In fact, we talked about this on Thursday. Christ was tempted But he never sinned. Now you and I, if we're tempted, we might sin very quickly. We might take a while to sin. But the longer you're tempted, the harder it is to resist. Think about Christ. He resisted till 
the end. He faced the ultimate temptations. And he faced temptations we will never understand. Yes, maybe he didn't have social media or other things we have today. But he faced the temptation of not going to the cross. He faced temptations as the Son of God that we could never understand. Yet he never sinned, not even once. Now the question is, could he have sinned? And I, I don't think it's a very important question because he didn't sin. And I don't think he could have sinned, but that doesn't mean that he wasn't tempted. He felt the emotional weight of what it was like to be tempted and tried in every way. Christ lived a human life. He experienced laughter, joy, sadness, pain. He wept for Lazarus. He experienced disappointment in his disciples. In Luke, it says he grew in wisdom and stature. What does that mean? How could Christ, the Son of God, grow in wisdom? He grew up. He became a man. He grew in different ways. He was human. We can go to Christ because he understands what it's like to be a human. You know, I've been subbing at different schools. And every time I sub, I try to at least meet the principal of the school. I think, I'll just say, I think the schools around here have great principals. I've been to other schools, though, where the administration doesn't really understand the teachers and where they're coming from. Maybe they had an administrative job. Maybe they don't understand what the kids are like. And it's always challenging because they don't really know what is it like to be in the classroom. The best principals I've seen just personally have been teachers who know what students are like. And then they can understand how to run the school and help the teachers out in the best way they can. Christ gets you this morning. If you're here and you've sinned, he's not sinned, but he's been tempted. He knows what temptation feels like. When you have that one sin that you just can't overcome, Christ identifies with you. He understands temptation because he's been tempted like we are. And he gives you the power to overcome your sin. If you're suffering this morning, Christ understands your suffering He's experienced loss. He's experienced disappointment. He's experienced pain like no one else. The father, while he was on the cross, turned his face away. Just imagine what that would be like for Jesus, the Son of God. When we feel the loss of a loved one, when we face disappointment, when we face injustice, Christ experienced every single one of those things. And you know what? You know what's so crazy about that is that he didn't have to. He could have experienced no pain, no suffering, no sadness. But he took on our sin so that he could be your high priest. When you serve, remember you serve the risen Christ who understands you. Who lived a real human life. Who is the head of the church. He remembers you. We should draw near to Jesus because he's seated by the Father. Lastly, notice with me, we should draw near to Jesus because he's full of mercy and grace. Understanding both that he's the Son of God and fully man, 
we can then in verse 16, and this is the crescendo, the climax, the most important part. He says in verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. If Jesus is truly man, if he's truly God, if he's faced our temptations, if he's passed through the heavens, if we need him because God sees our sin, then the result is that we should go to his throne. We should draw near. Where, where does God's throne? Well, you see it a lot in the Psalms. It's this high and exalted place, a place that man cannot get to. When Isaiah saw it, he said, Woe is me, I'm undone. It's where the Father is seated. And guess what? Christ is seated there too, at the right hand of the Father. And it says, His throne is full of mercy and grace. Mercy, not giving you what you deserve. Grace, giving you what you don't deserve. And He wants to give you both of those things when you draw near to Him. So the question is, how do we draw near to Jesus? Do we try to jump and see how high we can get to heaven? How do we get close to Jesus? We pray. We pray to Christ, asking him to intercede for us. We make our requests to him. When you've sinned, when you've fallen short, when you don't thank God, can love you when you're ashamed of what others would think. Draw near to Jesus. Confess your sin. He's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. When you spent so much time hiding your sin and you say, there's no way I could come clean about this. Everyone thinks I'm this way. Well, guess what? God's known who you are. He's seen how ugly you are. He's seen how horrible your sin is. And he wants to forgive you. He wants to offer you mercy and grace. You cannot hide your sin from God, but you can pray to Jesus and ask forgiveness for your sin. In times of suffering, you can draw near to Jesus. There's no better place for comfort, for grace, for help than at the throne of Christ. He sees your suffering. He suffered himself in his life. And he wants to comfort you. It's a good reminder for us, even as we encourage others during this hard time, the loss of loved ones. Some saying about how time heals all wounds, things like that. Maybe things that we really think are helpful. They're not as helpful as taking someone to the throne of Christ And saying, he understands you, and he loves you, and he's faced loss, and he's faced disappointment. But Christ, when you draw near to him, he'll never leave you or forsake you. There's so many things people will turn to in hard times. Other people, other things to take their mind off of things. Even things that could be sinful. But we as Christians can draw near to Jesus. He's full of mercy and grace. When you serve, you can serve for Jesus. 
you can pray and ask for his help, his guidance. You can pray to him, draw near to him. He's the ultimate motivation for why we do ministry. Everything we hope to achieve here on earth for Christ, the crowns we receive, we cast them back at his feet. And so this morning, as we think about who Jesus is, he's your great high priest. He's passed through the heavens. He knows your weakness. You don't have to hide from him. And so how do we respond? Confess your sin to him. He sees you. He knows you. He knows what you struggle with. Confess your sin to him. He's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin. Secondly, share your suffering with him. There's no one else on earth who can identify with your suffering like Jesus. And then lastly, do your service for him. And we await a day. We have Jesus, our great high priest now, who intercedes for us. Why? Because we can't be with the Father. We're too sinful. But there will be a day, as John says, we will be made like him. We will be made like him. We will see him for who he truly is. And what is that going to be like? I don't know. What are we going to be able to do in heaven? We're going to have to wait and find out. But the important thing is, is that Jesus is there. And that's all that matters. I heard someone talk about death and having a dog as, you know, my friend, it kind of makes more sense. I think about my dog and he goes outside to the Finston area and he's playing out there and stuff. But there comes a point when he wants to come inside and he scratches on the door a lot to try to get inside. Now I'm renting the house. so I'm trying not to get him to do that, you know, but that lets him know that he wants to go inside and he has no idea maybe what's going to be on the other side, but he knows I'm in the other room. And so when I open that door, he springs in and he's super excited to see me or get food, either one. But I hope it's to see me. And, you know, Mac has no idea what's on the other side of the door but he knows that Jesus is there. As we think about entering his rest, drawing near to Christ, we don't know what heaven will be like, but we are anxious, we're excited, we are hopeful. Why? Because Christ is there. Because he's there, and we are so anxious to be with him. He intercedes for us now, He's, in, he's passed through the heavens. He's with the Father. But one day we will be with him. I hope you're anxious for that day like I am. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, our great high priest. Thank you for sending him to the earth to take on our human flesh, to die in our place. God, may we as Christians... Be faithful to draw near to him. God, I pray for those of us in sin, all of us sin and fall short of your glory. May we be quick. May we be faithful to confess our sin to you. God, there's so much suffering. We think about this family who has lost loved ones. God, may they in their suffering draw near to you. Would you help us to be a comfort to them? God, as we serve you here as a church, there's times where we can grow restless. 
There's times when we can wonder, are we doing any good? But Christ, we serve you. We do ministry for you, and so help us to draw near to you, depending on you, knowing that nothing good comes from us, everything comes from you. And may the members of Sycamore Bible Church stand before you one day and hear you say, well done, good and faithful servants. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.